0: Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. Welcome to a special edition of Macquarie Street. This week I sit down with a man who has become a very special friend and mentor who from behind the scenes has had a profound impact on modern Australian politics. I first met Tony McClellan 15 years ago when I went to work at the Australian Christian Lobby in Canberra. Tony was a member of the board at the time and was chairman during my initial years as Managing Director. He is a remarkable man and brought to the ACL a wealth of business experience, not-for-profit experience and experience as a godly Christian gentleman. It was my privilege to get to know him and his wife, Ray, through some of the biggest trials and tribulations the ACL went through in its formative years. Tony has recently written his life story, an autobiography called A Glorious Ride from Jumble Plains to Eternity. It is co-written with Nick Cater, one of Australia's finest journalists, and now the executive director of the Liberal Party's think tank, the Menzies Research Centre. The book combines Tony's gift as a raconteur uh, with prodigious record keeping discipline, with Nick's journalistic polish to tell about an extraordinary life from the bush of Western New South Wales to the boardrooms of London, Toronto, Houston, Atlanta, and back again to Sydney. It was my privilege to sit down with Tony and talk about what his book has to say about life, faith, business and politics. Well, Tony McClellan, it's a great uh, privilege to have you as a guest on Macquarie Street. Welcome.
1: Uh, Lyle, such an honour to be with you and be here. Thank you very much.
0: Well, Tony, I'm really looking forward to this conversation about uh, your new book. Uh, It it begins uh, with your early life in far western New South Wales, growing up on a sprawling uh, sheep wheat uh, property called Jumble Plains. Uh, What was it like uh, growing up in the bush of Australia? Well,
1: Lyle, I didn't know anything else. And uh, uh, and now when I look back, it's really quite strange that even going back now, to the property as we did when we came back from overseas. It was quite weird, you know, trying to recall what I was doing and how I was uh, moving about the property and the responsibilities I had. Uh, but it was a different sort of life, great community life, mm. which was really, really important to me after my dad died. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. The the property itself, uh, I was intrigued, was uh, a family property. I think your, your grandfather settled there. Um, it had a magnificent homestead with a, a ballroom, yes. uh, a golf course. Yes. Uh, this is something um, I think, well, I, I found it intriguing to hear of a farm a property with those sort of facilities at six hours' drive west of, of Sydney. Yes. Um, just tell us about uh, the property and, and why it had those sort of facilities and the vision of your, your grandfather in creating such, I guess, an oasis uh, for the local community.
1: Yes, my my grandfather was a... Uh, obviously, and I didn't know him, he died four years before I was born. But he was a real goer and a community-minded person. When I read the obituary uh, uh, to him, it became much clearer to me what a magnificent job he'd done in the community. He even had horse races on the property, tennis courts, as you say, and this huge ballroom in the middle of the house, just... Quite extraordinary, and we, in my time, used to have uh, big community functions there, uh, school graduations, play nights, uh, empire nights was uh, celebrated in the ballroom, and ballroom dancing was a huge part of life in the country. Then they had the Western District uh, Golf Championship there one year, so on. The other thing that I think is interesting, significant, is that Cobb Co coaches mm. uh, had a stopping place at Jumble Plains. Yeah. So they used to train, change their horses at Jumble Plains. The significance of that is that to this very day, the mailman comes all the way into the homestead as if he was going to change his horses yeah. there and uh, makes it very convenient. So you don't have a mailbox mm. on the side of the road like everybody else has.
0: Uh, Your book really um, does take the reader back to, uh, I guess, an Australia that has probably vanished uh, given the ease of travel. Um, But you went to, despite the the lovely homestead that your grandfather and father had created, you went to school in a very humble one-room bush school down the road that you had to
1: ride your bike to. Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, That's the glorious ride that I start the story with. We used to ride the bike several miles to the uh, station next door where the local grazers got together and renovated this little hut and built some toilets and uh, and a weather shed and a bike rack. And uh, we used to ride there every morning, my sisters and I. And uh, I went through school there from started school at school of the air. My mother taught me to read and write and then, uh, and then picked it up in second class and up all the way up to sixth grade. Nobody ever in my grade. And uh, so I graduated ducks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good. Tony, a feature of this
0: um, very fascinating story, apart from uh, taking us back to uh, a part of Australia, which is, is, is long vanished, um, is, is just your honesty and the rawness with which you write. And growing up, uh, your mum and dad, despite uh, the beautiful property uh, that they had, For whatever reason, uh, we're both alcoholics. Uh, You you write that your dad drank a a bottle of spirits a day until he finally uh, died. Yes. Um, uh, How did this affect uh, the young Tony McClellan? You were about 15 or 16 when he passed.
1: Uh, I suppose uh, I I had no no alternative, nothing with which to compare it. I just, it was what we had. And uh, it's a bit weird in a way, but uh, I love my dad and respected him and enjoyed working with him. But um, he did drink uh, too much and became violent when he drank too much, and uh, you know did some really silly things. Mm. Uh, but you know, it just became well, the way of life. Mm. And I think uh, our alcoholic consumption was a big thing that part of the world. A lot of the uh, property owners in the region uh, were doing that. What was the property under financial pressure at the time?
0: Was that part of um, this?
1: No, no particular Mm. financial pressure. Uh, And in fact, we'd just passed through, 1950 was the peak year for wool prices. Mm. They absolutely boomed. We got wool up to a pound a pound Mm. uh, in 1950 Mm. and uh, uh, you know, went from like seventy pence a pound, uh, and uh, and uh, so we had very big, big financial years. Mm. I wasn't old enough to properly appreciate it, mm. but then when I be- he died in '56, I became uh, you know much more conscious of things like that, mm. and uh, uh, and things were doing very well, but. Uh, in 56, we had a flood. Mm. Uh, we were flood bound for eight months. Mm. We couldn't get into the property but walk through thigh deep water. Mm. And uh, we had five vehicles bogged, and we had to park out way out on the main road and walk all the way in. Mm. And that went on, and our, and as an aside, a wool clip. Uh, we couldn't get out, couldn't truck out, and it was in bales. And some of it had been shorn where the sheep were a bit wet, so all the wool became water-stained, ruined the value of that crop, that uh, clip. And, and another byproduct is the sheep then couldn't be brought in for dipping to treat them for lice. So when they get lice, they rub themselves a lot, and rub the wool off, ruin that, so the next year's wool clip was badly affected. So it was a tough time. Uh, and then we went, rolled straight into a drought. Uh, and I remember carting hay, uh, probably, uh, uh, probably fifty-eight. Uh, I can't remember exactly, but carting hay for miles and miles away. Uh, so trying to keep the stock
0: alive. Yeah, no, interesting. I mean, you, you, you chronicle the ups and downs of, of rural life. And as you say, obviously, a well-established property like Jumble Plains yes. uh, had the ability to withstand the ups and downs of the season. So it wasn't um, necessarily financial pressure or hardship that aff- afflicted your parents. You, you do write that they, they weren't particularly committed Christians. They were, I guess, notional Presbyterians, yes. I suppose. Yes. Um, That's
1: right. That's right. Uh, uh, yes, they were, that wasn't a part of the, I, I I can only remember once or twice going to church with them mm. to a little bush church, mm. little church in the countryside, some property miles and miles mm. away, mm. Uh, uh, just uh, once or twice that happened, so it wasn't a big Part of their life. So we'll
0: return to this theme of um, what gives ultimate meaning in life and, and perhaps that might um, unpack some clues about your parents potentially, but you were at uh, Scott's College in Sydney yes. uh, at the age of 15. You'd gone there to, to boarding school when you got word of, of your dad yes. his passing. Um, yes. w- what was that like to receive that news and to be uh, brought home at short notice?
1: Well, interestingly, uh, he, he became quite sick when I was 15 and I was home for the September holidays. And uh, he said, uh, he and mum said to me, how would you feel about leaving school and coming back and helping back at Jumbo Plains? I said, I'd love to, I'd love to. So I left school uh, in fourth year and uh, came back and worked on the property under my dad's guidance. Uh, subsequently, I had to have an operation and I went back to Sydney for that operation. And uh, while I was in hospital, my grandmother who lived in Sydney got news that my dad was dying in a local hospital. Uh, he had kidney uremia, failure of the kidneys, and, uh, and there was no treatment in those days, And uh, she came and got me out of hospital a couple of days earlier when, and uh, put me on a plane. I headed back to Tullamore and I was picked up, in fact, by a neighbour and uh, driven to Tullamore. And when I arrived in Tullamore, I was told that he died that morning in uh, Tullamore Hospital. Uh, so I, 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 all I knew is that he, excuse me, that he was sick. I didn't know there was acutely ill, and uh, so it was a big shock. And fortunately, uh, my uncles, knowing that the end was near, planned the funeral and let the word out in the district, and the funeral was held that very day, which was really good because we got it all over and done mm. with, mm. so to speak. And then uh, I was taken off to a neighbour's property with a good friend of mine, and uh, and stayed there for a week, re- recovering, uh, mm-hmm. trying to get my senses back, and, uh, and then headed back to the property and had to pack up all his things. Uh, and I'll never forget finding his false teeth in the bathroom cabinet. It was very emotional. Mm-hmm. That was part yeah. of my dad. and. Yeah. Uh, and I had to dispose of all those and these clothes and so on. Mm. And then assume control of the property.
0: Mm. Yeah, then, now this is a, a big thing for uh, a teenager. You've yes. just turned 16 years 16, old, yes. uh, you've buried your dad, and mm. now you're running Jumble Plains, yes. uh, the family property, uh, yes. as a teenager with, with working men under you. Um, I, I love um, the, the years that you describe in the book of that. Um, totally different to, uh, I couldn't imagine um, any 16 year old today assuming yes, that, that uh, level of responsibility. Yeah, me uh, too. You grew up fast, I, I, I presume.
1: Yes, that's right. And, and didn't have time to think about all the uh, frivolous things that teenagers do. Uh, although I must tell you, pretty quickly, got involved in the, in the local tennis, got involved in the cricket, was captain of the local cricket team, and, uh, and then got involved in ballroom dancing, which I loved and started uh, a dance orchestra. And uh, that was a very um, relaxing change of scene for me, uh, having this dance orchestra we took all over the district uh, because ballroom dancing is hugely yeah. popular.
0: Yeah, so so um, we hear a lot about mental health uh, these days and, and um, yeah. certainly that's a, a big issue and there's lots of traumas and pressures that people find and particularly young people, we have a very high right. youth suicide right. rate. But back in your day in the 1950s, um, you're coping with the death of your, your dad and uh, you've taken on big responsibility, but the local community activities of tennis, ballroom dancing, cricket, yeah. uh, the responsibility of running the property, I guess you probably didn't have a lot of time to think about it. I presume all those things helped with the mental health challenges that you would have had as a young man facing that sort of trauma.
1: Well, that's a very interesting observation, Lyle. I've never thought of it. Uh, I'll bet you it was a huge help. Mm. Uh, Getting with other people. Mm. Uh, One of the things that was also very good, my dad uh, uh, had said to me, uh, when I didn't I was let's say 14 or 13, said if you don't drink or smoke before you're 21, I'll give you a thousand pounds. thousand pounds was a lot in those days, enough to buy me a sports car. And my mother kept that promise and mm. gave me the money to buy a car. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was a very smart thing to do because obviously I didn't drink or smoke, For that very reason, Mm. was a very, uh, very good thing to do, Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, so that aspect of drinking didn't interfere with me uh, in any way. You know, all my friends drank, and it was you know a popular thing. But uh, uh, in the bush, I suppose it's popular everywhere. But I. um, uh, going back to the mental health thing, I can't recall ever encountering a mental health mm. issue mm. Mm. in the bush. It must have been a lot of
0: it. Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't mean that um, you obviously weren't grieving and went yes. through the natural emotions, yes, but that's uh, there, right. there were other ways that helped you to be resilient. Yes, uh, yes. And this was in your days prior to becoming a Christian as well. So. Yes,
1: that's right. That's right.
0: Just, just on the drinking thing, Tony, um, You know, it's drinking such a big part of uh, Australian culture and yeah. life. Um, yes. Were you ever um, tempted in the way that your, both your mother and your father were to to resort to alcohol eventually? I, I know you didn't drink till you're 21, you kept that, that promise. But uh, subsequently in life,
1: uh, was it ever a, an issue for you uh, as it was for no, your No, uh, Lyle, it's never been an issue. Uh, and uh, I drink a little now, but not much, uh, and, and enjoy it. Uh, mm. But I've never been into it in a serious way. Mm. And I've, uh, I've uh, uh, very, very conscious of it. Mm. Even today, if you and I went and had lunch now, and had a a wine over lunch, and I would never drink it at lunchtime. But if we had a wine, I would be subconsciously looking to see how much wine you drink. You know, Interesting. Uh, uh, I'll uh, keep
0: that in mind next time we're at lunchtime. <laughs> okay. But Tony, you, you say in the book. Um, that uh, you had the good fortune to grow up um, and come of age at a special time in Australia. Now, this yeah. is the, the late, you know, mid to late 50s. Tell us about that time in our nation.
1: Well, we were uh, through the war. We, were, we had just uh, gone through the Korean War in the 49, 50. And, and so we were relatively at peace. The wool price, uh, so from the you know the community where I was raised, wool price was high, and uh, f- uh, and we were booming in in that sense. We had stable government under uh, uh, under Menzies, uh, so I would have thought it was a very very good time for young people to mm. roll up their sleeves and get stuck into mm, it, mm. And, and in. Indeed, uh, at the, um, when my dad coffin was lowered in the grave, I burst into tears, and I was so ashamed uh, that I'd cried because I'd always been told that grown men don't cry. Mm. And uh, I, I'm thinking of my dad's funeral. Why, why, what I, why have I done that? Mm. But I resolved there and then that I would adopt the motto of uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, uh, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Mm, mm. And that is indeed the underlying theme of my book, mm. and is the very last line. Yep. And I'm hoping we'll encourage young people, especially, yep. to, um, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I want to draw out some of those uh, key life lessons. Um, We'll just fast forward a little, Tony. Uh, You ended up leaving the farm. The the property had to be sold because of the the death taxes that existed in those days. But then you went on to forge a very successful career in real estate and as a property developer before you were tapped on the shoulder by a man, I believe, Peter Monk. Yes. Um, uh, Tell us about uh, Peter Monk, because a theme of your book is the relationships you have with people. And you say um, that our success in life depends on our relationships with other people. Tell us about Peter Monk, that concept and, um, and what that relationship uh, then led to for you.
1: Oh, Lyle, you bring back emotions to me. Uh, Peter Monk, yes. And if I could just sort of start mm. a fraction early by saying that I got married Ray and I were married when we were 20, and it was Ray who encouraged me to move from the bush to the city so I could go to university. She really, I don't know, I I believe could see the potential and uh, so I went there and because, not because I'm particularly bright, but I I really did know how to work hard and concentrate and I did well at uh, university. Highest grade since 1929, I was told, and and that got me notoriety mm, mm. and allowed me entrance at a, a much higher level in the property development business. I met Peter Monk as part of in, through that. Peter asked me would I look at a project that he was doing in Egypt, and I'm I looked at millions of projects mm. and I went off uh, and for a couple of weeks. In London, looking at the drawings, and then to Egypt to look at the project, came back and reported to him. And I said, "I think it's a brilliant project, uh, but you know, here's five things that I'd be concerned about, and I'd be wanting to address." Peter uh, said, "Tony, that's so brilliant. I just appreciate what you do. Will you go and be managing director of the whole project?" I couldn't believe it. But uh, we took on the challenge, we learnt Arabic, packed Mm. up the family and went to Cairo to live, Mm. hired a 1,000 people and started developing this big new city. It's
0: it's an amazing story, Tony, uh, and and, um, we're going to have to leave something for the people uh, who are watching this to read in the book. (laughs) But um, uh, I will again just uh, fast forward again because I want to tease out at the end some some key, I think, uh, gems that you... um, Provide us in this book, but uh, your time in Egypt then led to other opportunities. You ended yeah. up in Toronto, Canada, and uh, one of the things that I find fascinating is um, is uh, your what that became a very high flying business career. Literally, you were on the Concorde, um, and for those who don't know, that's a supersonic jet, right. <laughs> which passenger jet, which is now sadly out of service. Yeah. But uh, you said in, in 1981, you crossed the Atlantic. Um, fourteen times uh, in in the Concorde. Yes. You, and uh, you have a line in the book that the Concord never failed to excite. Yes. What was it like being well, on that uh, aircraft? Well, it's an
1: amazing thing, Lyle. And you know, I just became so blasé about it because I was doing so much of it, and I did it for several years. But that I think in uh, uh, in that year had fourteen trips. Uh, And I happened to know that because I kept a detailed log of all my international travel. And Nick Cater, who worked with me on the book, uh, picked that up. He was really fascinated with it. And it was really quite exciting. And a lot of high flyers were in. I travelled alongside uh, uh, Superman one day. Christopher Reeve. Yeah, Yeah. Christopher Reeve. (laughs) I didn't know it was him. And uh, the hostess told me and had a wonderful conversation with him, met him afterwards, had his awful accident. Uh, another time we were with Paul and Linda, Ray was with mm. me with Paul mm. and Linda McCartney. And you, you met all sorts of uh, uh, pretty fancy people, but it was incredibly convenient, three and a quarter hours from New York to London. Either way, uh, I remember one time and I'd been up in the cockpit two or three times three or four times. And they were, you know, you were going along you see the curvature of the Earth. Incredible. And uh, looking at the, the ocean, and then up came Europe. Europe came up over the horizon. <laughs> it's so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, we've got to get ready to descend. You better go back to your seat. So, we were, uh, and things like you pass a jumbo and you're doing 700 miles an hour faster than the jumbo. So you just leave. Amazing.
0: Did you ever think about jumble planes when you are on the Concorde? No, I didn't. <laughs> Life no, had moved on. No, I did not. It's incredible. Oh, uh, from yeah. riding horses to riding yeah. the Concorde. Tony, um, y- your business career in uh, North America really, really took off, and people can read the book to find the details of that. But you, you found yourself working for an organisation, I think you're based in Atlanta at this stage, and uh, you picked up some... Um, uh, unethical activity, um, uh, you were looking at the, the books of the, um, of the enterprise and yes. you were put under serious pressure to, I suppose to use the vernacular, cook the books. Yes. And you make a comment here, you said, when there is clear and irrefutable corruption within an organisation, a leader must move immediately yes. to handle it.
1: Yes, I, I, yes, I think it's a really important because uh, you've said in the corner office, and you're often the last to know. People in the organisation, lesser uh, status people, know or feel, and the moment you know, you have to take action. Otherwise, people will just imagine that you Mm -hmm. don't have a standard of ethics that they look to. Mm -hmm. So when I found this out and did uh, some research, I immediately fired the president and the executive vice president, chief financial officer, and uh, tipped them out of the organization. And, um, uh, you know, I think the lesson driving that is Jesus finding the money changers in the mm. temple. Mm. He didn't call a board meeting and ask mm. people around him what he should do, he just kicked the tables over. Mm. He knew that was inappropriate. So I stopped that business in its track and uh, then later met the chairman who came to visit the company and I told him what had gone on mm. and I said... Uh, yeah, this I better... was George Hersky, wasn't it? Yes, that's mm. right.
0: Mm. For, for people who understand Australian <laughs> yes, 80s eighties mm. business, uh, yes, <laughs> he was right. a well-known figure. That's mm. right. Mm.
1: And uh, he sat in my office and uh, I, I told him that I'd discovered this... Deception and that uh, uh, I I believed that we should write down the assets that we had. And I think the number was like seven million. And uh, he said, No, no, Tony, can't do that. Uh, I've got my shares on margin call and it'll drive down the share price, news like that. And I said, Well, I've got to tell the auditors. And he said, No, no, I don't want you to tell the auditors. And I was flabbergasted, went home. In those days, the ledgers were all handwritten. So I took them with me to my home. Came in the next day and told him that I was resigning, that wow. I couldn't work in that. And uh, I don't know, two or three years later, he was in prison mm. for five years, I think, for some other wow. criminal activity, mm. uh, not related to that. But uh, anyway, mm. I'm very glad I took that position. Yeah. So the, going back to the point is uh, when you see something like that, you have to take action.
0: And you you
1: paid a price in
0: terms of uh, reminding from the company. Tony, um, I'll never forget the day when uh, I was at Australian Christian Lobby at a staff retreat and you and Ray uh, came down to address the staff. I think we were at a beautiful property at Goulburn. Some friends of the organisation allowed us to have our retreats there. And you shared very openly and humbly about a crisis period that uh, you and Ray went through. Uh, yes. You were, I think, age of 47, at the height of your business success, had become uh-huh. very wealthy, had a beautiful family. Right. But uh, suddenly the wheels fell off. And um, I was very impacted by you humbly saying how Ray put uh, your daughter on a plane and uh, flew back to Sydney yes. and left you. Yes.
1: Uh, it's unbelievable trauma when, I, when for so long I'd been in control of everything and dictating all sorts of things, and not realising that I hadn't paid enough attention to Ray and the family. And Ray got sick of it, and quite rightly and very bravely uh, decided that she needs to go and draw her breath and and consider whether she wanted to continue on with this sort of life. And uh, she threatened to... She said, I'll go back home. I said, oh, that's just... I've heard that before, I won't take any notice of it. And I got in the car and went and drove to Florida to play in a tennis tournament. Came back and she was gone, I couldn't believe Mm -hmm. it. And the miracle is that we'd been to church for the first time for ages, the previous weekend and Christmas Eve. And the minister, like all good ministers, uh, was out visiting the newcomers to his church. And he came and uh, said immediately, where's Ray? And I said, well, she's gone back to Australia. And I was in tears, and he could see how distressed I was. And he said, "Uh, Tony, you need Jesus. And I said, no, I need help. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know then that Jesus was the source of the help. But uh, like we read in Revelations, he'd been knocking at the door for 47 years, and I'd never opened the door. Mm. And we sat on the couch, and Michael, the minister, Mm. said, Tony, let's pray to let Jesus into your life. Mm. And we did, many more tears, lots of emotion, and uh, my life changed Mm. instantly, instantly, within minutes. I realised that the trouble, the cause of the trouble was me. Mm-hmm. I never, I wouldn't have ever thought of it. Yeah. it. It was always Ray. Ray was the problem.
0: <laughs> I think all of us as husbands think that. So you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tony, it's, it's a very powerful story and, and it's, it's uh, just as poignant in reading it as it was that day that I heard you tell it at our staff uh. retreat so many years ago. Um, Tony, but it wasn't um, happily ever after, after that, uh, repairing your marriage, finding Jesus, uh, yeah. you'd think, well, that's, that's the end of the story, but, but, it, but it wasn't. You then had another crisis.
1: Um, t- tell us about that. Uh, Lyle, um, one of the things we did very early in our new life as Christians was to have some serious discussion about what we wanted to do with our lives. We'd reached half time, half time in our business career, and uh, there's a great book. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I met the author of the book. He gave me a copy. I, I was absorbed. But I uh, bought copies for every member of the family. And Ray and I resolved that we would concentrate. We wouldn't stop trying to be successful, but we'd concentrate on the purpose that was driving us. It wasn't to buy a yacht or it was to do something for our fellow man. So we, uh, we got very much more involved, oh, totally involved in a not-for-profit Christian organizations, got really involved in our church, and, uh, and not long after uh, uh, an opportunity to, arose to form a software company, which <clears throat> I did. I was full of my self-confidence I'd raised a lot of capital, done lots of deals, and I said, said to myself, "And this was a software to to block pornography mm. from coming into families' homes, so it had a worthwhile purpose." Absolutely. And uh, and uh, but I couldn't raise the money, and we kept pouring our own savings into it, more and more and more, and eventually sent ourselves absolutely broke. Uh, we were. Dependent on other people, mm-hmm. friends, to uh, to support us, and weren't able to pay the mortgage on our house, and our house was foreclosed on. We lost our house. We sold our cars to contribute the capital to the company, and we were absolutely desperate, mm-hmm. and thought that uh, God was somehow punishing us, mm-hmm. but God shown the real meaning of from John 15 about Jesus says, I'm the vine and the, my, God is the gardener and Amen. he prunes the vine and those branches that are not bearing fruit, he cuts off and throws in the fire. And we thought, well, maybe that's us. Uh, and then you read a little bit later and you say that he cut, He prunes those that are, remain in him to bear much fruit. Amen. And we became satisfied that that's his work in us. We spent a lot of time and effort seeking forgiveness for any sin that sins we mm. completely forgotten about. And uh, God, shortly thereafter, uh, introduced us to a man, a Christian man from the Netherlands, came and looked at our company, fell in love with it. And said to me in one more the following morning, "Would ten million do?" (laughs) It's hard to believe. And and part of the deal was that we could recover all our own capital that we invested in there. He in effect bought that capital back, bought that interest, and uh, and uh, we took out the capital we put, and so we're able to buy a house back in Australia and so on, start our life again. And uh, we kept uh, getting more and more involved in the local community, formed two not-for-profit organisations, one in Washington and one in Atlanta, and then eventually moved back to Sydney and got more and more involved Mm -hmm. in the not-for-profit world, uh, which we've been just an enormous blessing yeah. to it.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's an extraordinary story and it's and you've, you've told it in, in um, a little snapshot in our discussion here, but uh, it was four years of um, concert anxiety, I think ah, you're right, yes. uh, but I'll let people read that. Now, you've you mentioned you came back to Australia and I wanted to talk to you about this because um, apart from continuing your business career back here in Sydney, yes. uh, particularly in the resources sector, you uh, got involved with a number of high-profile Christian, not-for-profit organisations, Habitat for Humanity. We're involved in building houses for the poor, particularly after the tsunami in Arche. You're involved in um, Opportunity International. Uh, And, of course, uh, with Australian Christian Lobby, where where we first met. And I remember in our days at ACL, uh, you and uh, our mutual friend Jim Wallace, who who really got ACL going and uh, really uh, led and current chairman, but... um, this idea of mission drift in Christian organisations. And uh, you brought a particular perspective to ACL from some of your previous experience, particularly with Opportunity International. Can you just unpack that for us?
1: Well, Lyle, yes, I don't know why I became so obsessed with it. And uh, I think it's a part of the blessing is that I I came into the not-for-profit world later than many uh, was not saved till I was 47 and so I had a fresh look at this stuff and I became absolute and I I led a huge church in mm. Atlanta out of the episcopal denomination mm. that i I believed and the whole church believed mm. had lost its way mm. no no longer biblically li, literate that was and,
0: particularly in the area of um, of uh, what appropriate sexual relationships uh, for, oh, for Christians exactly in, in right. terms of the, the marriage exactly covenant. Um, right. So that was a huge issue. Episcopalian, of course, uh, the equivalent yes. of the Anglican church yes. uh, there in America. That's a whole, another very important yes, story that goes right. to this mission por- drift is- issue.
1: Yeah. Yes. Uh, it, yes, a very a superb example. Uh, so I became a bit obsessed with it. I mm-hmm. saw it happen in organisations in which I was directly involved and, and it really hurt me a lot mm-hmm. to think that Organisations that I'd worked hard at and and tried to contribute to, and I think, in fact, fair to say, did contribute to, Mm -hmm. but it'd be... uh, uh, Tony, what what are the
0: signs of um, mission drift in a Christian
1: organisation? What are the signs? The signs, I suppose, well, the driving force is often money, not always. But often money, people give money and then start to dictate how you spend it, what you do with it. I've Mm. seen that specifically twice now, where people say, yes, you can have a quarter of a million from me, but this is what it's going to be spent on. And the board, the the trustees, will be so taken with the amount of money and the... uh, 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 the power that it gives them and the organisation without stopping and reflecting is that the direction that the, the organisation was created for, created for. So, so there's a, a, so a, a
0: temptation to compromise uh, the Christian ethos of the organisation. Yes, of course, mm. of
1: course. Mm. Uh, and so, yes, so yeah. you lose, uh, so quickly lose direction. And yeah. so we at ACL have spent a huge mm amount of time and effort. You, uh, in particular, and including, uh, uh, I think, have done a terrific job of, of uh, really bearing down on what our mission is, mm-hmm. and it continues to this day.
0: Yeah, I, I remember the um, paper you presented to the board entitled Maintaining Our Christian Ethos, Ethos and I thought that was... A little strange for an organisation that's called the Australian Christian yes, Lobby. I thought, yes. why do we need? You know, it's, it's self-evident yes, that we're going yes. to be Christian. But, yes. uh, but I was so glad for it because um, it's so easy to be taken off course yes. by the sort of temptations uh, that yes, you mentioned. Yes,
1: yeah. it is. Yeah. And, and let, let's be um, let's be honest, uh, Lyle. There are not not necessarily the major- majority of people understand it like you do. Think about it like Jim does, or I do, uh, of uh, the criticality of staying true to the Bible.
0: I'm interested, Tony. Um, we, we sadly see uh, many Christian organisations. Um, there's obviously fantastic work being done for the kingdom, but we do see all too often uh, failures of governance in uh, organisations, in churches. What do you see uh, as the key ingredients for good uh, corporate governance of a Christian not for profit ministry?
1: Well, one of the things that I think has been a big help to me is that I've been chairman of many. Many. How many? Say, ten public companies uh, all over the world, and I I know the public authorities that govern the companies have a very strict uh, controls on what directors do and reporting mechanisms, and so in company in organisations where I've had a leading role, and I would say Habitat's a good example, ACL's another good example. I've tried to adapt those requirements Mm. um, uh, uh, to the not-for-profit world. Mm. And indeed, in Habitat's case, I wrote out a charter because we were raising a lot of money from secular organisations. I would go to Mm. ANZ Bank and raise millions uh, to do our work. And (laughs) I must tell you, just an aside, I was never afraid to tell ANZ Bank that we were a Christian organization. Mm, mm. Some people would be, and I'm told they don't do it now. And my experience is, people respect you for that. Yeah. This is the
0: this is where the mission drift creeps in when you that's perhaps right. don't want to be upfront about your Christianity. Yeah, exactly I, I, right. I, I've always been impressed with that, Tony. I know I've been in many meetings with you where we've been with non-Christians and you've been very upfront about yes. your Christian faith. And yeah. I think that's wonderful. Um, you, you mentioned of all the organisations and, and you know, obviously I'm a bit biased, I don't know you're biased here, but you say in the book that of all the organisations you've had an association with, uh, the most rewarding of all was Australian Christian Lobby. Yes.
1: Uh, why is that? Uh, well, I suppose the first thing is that I, I thought it was doing really worthwhile work, uh, contributing to society in the broadest sense. That the people who the uh, they act the the. Ac- the, the perf- people performing active roles, and I include Jim and and yourself in that obviously, and now Martin, Mm. are just brilliant at their level of commitment Mm. and uh, earnestness and trying to achieve, make things better Mm. for us all. Mm. Mm. Uh, It was, uh, it gave me an opportunity, I believe, to uh, flex my muscles Mm. Uh, based on my commercial experience Absolutely. I had had this commercial background but I was able to bring uh, 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 quite a lot of that mm. experience into helping frame and mold uh, the, the way ACL approached things mm. not at a management sense like a, mm. you know what you said at the interview but rather uh, mm. what your overall objectives yeah. were and so on. Yeah. And I've, I just felt really blessed mm. that it was a really terrific contribution that I can make.
0: Absolutely. Um, I've been, had the chance, having been out of ACL for three or four years now, uh, to reflect on uh, just the power of good governance of, uh, yes. of an organisation. Yes. And that's something which, which you brought both from a commercial perspective, but also from a, a Christian godly perspective. Yes. But yes. Um, you say in the book, you're concerned for the future uh, for your grandchildren. Uh, You say, you ask the question, who will save us from the deconstructionists? Uh, It's an interesting word, but uh, I think any of us who objectively look at the way our nation is going could only see that it is being deconstructed. The family, marriage, gender itself, um, everything is being upended. And and, and, and I know uh, that's a a big reason for you being involved in ACL because you could see an organisation that was seeking to address some of these um,
1: issues. Right. Well, you know, Ray and I have now married 60 years with uh, with uh, eight beautiful grandchildren, worry more than anything about mm-hmm. how our grandchildren are going to behave or respond to these things. We've got grandchildren pre- approaching the age of marriage, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, the, old, the good old days when you got engaged and then you got married and then you moved in, seems to have disappeared, you know. And I can't believe that we've got grandchildren Mm. who might do the same. Mm. Mm. I'm hoping, praying, uh, we pray for them every single night that they won't, Mm. but they're under enormous pressure. Mm. If they, they've got a part, they'll have a partner and the partner won't perhaps, have the same sort of upbringing bringing that they've had, and so he'll be he or she will be putting the pressure yeah. on and uh, so we're worried about yep. that, and yep. that's just one thing that's sort of a here and now hmm. and it's a beautiful thing to to have uh, our family say well yep. we're so grateful to you with your principles that's such a a guide for the grandchildren mm, and mm. makes me very proud and very, um, very grateful mm. to be here uh, and be able to mentor them a little. How important do you think it is for
0: uh, people uh, who are mature in their faith, like y- yourself, um, to be engaging the political realm? I mean, your motivation for being involved in ACL is very much your grandchildren, it's the, the future. Um, the the sort of um, voice that organisations like ACL are into our public square, how how important is that? And uh, what are the consequences if we don't Uh, (laughs) continue to get it uh, engaged uh, and involved?
1: There are, of course, other organisations speaking up, but nowhere near Mm. uh, with the power and numbers of... ACL, but very earnest, well-meaning organisations that I've had a bit to do with over the years and yeah. st- stay in touch with now. Uh, but if you just thought about for a second, God forbid that if ACL didn't exist, it'd be chaos. Yeah. It'd be chaos. It would the things that it was, it's able to bring to the attention of the public and to our politicians is a really, really mm. important. Mm. And are we able to convince the, the politicians, all, the, all of them all the time to think our way? No, but I'm sure mm. causing a lot of pause and reflection. Well, maybe we shouldn't be mm. rushing into that. And yeah. so cumulatively, I think it's having a very very yeah. big effect.
0: Uh, very much so. And, and you and I were involved in the days from when uh, there was probably less than 10,000 supporters, now over 230,000 yes. uh, speaking uh, uh, Christian principles and ethics uh, yes. and uh, truth into the public square. And uh, I think none of us would say that <laughs> uh, we would probably still see that our society is still going in the wrong direction, but at least there's a voice there. Uh, but and, and I think that's important. But I, I guess the other thing that I draw real hope from your book, Tony, um, there is that bigger picture of what organisations like ACL can do through politics. But you finish the book with, I think, a very powerful chapter entitled um, something along the lines of um, lessons to a, a younger Tony. And yes. uh, I love Jordan Peterson and I'm sure you do too. But I think you take his 12 rules for life to a, another level in that ah. chapter.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, um, uh, thank you, Lyle. I, I, it means a lot to me and uh, the people that I've spoken to, especially younger people, and I think of uh, our fellows at the Lachlan Macquarie mm. Institute, which mm. I absolutely adore and love yeah. being there. And, and I thought, what would they like? What is it that I could pass on after 81 years on this life, on this earth, that uh, I wish I'd known? Mm. When I was 16 and I took over the management of the chief, I don't I didn't know any of these mm. things. And uh, so I thought deeply about what are the key lessons, what are the key factors, mm. and uh, I, I've written them out. And I'm, I'm hoping that um, young people, especially who will be, I uh, imagine more adaptable, will say, "Golly, so I'd never thought of that. I've never thought about, uh, you know, concentrating on one thing at a time." or mm. And uh, And I've had a number of people pass on comments like that, and the most important story is um, that when you die, neither fame nor fortune is going to get you to heaven. Mm. Doesn't matter how wealthy you are, or how famous you are, or what uh, kingdom you rule, you won't get to heaven unless you submit yourself to God. Mm. And so the key advice I leave is uh, that you should earnestly seek God's face.
0: I, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I had that in my notes to, to uh, end off on. But, uh, Tony, I think um, what you've delivered in this book in sharing so openly your life, the good, the bad, and, and the very difficult and challenging, uh, does give me hope that uh, if the next generation apply the principles and the wisdom that you share that there's even some hope we might see a little bit more of heaven on earth. Ah,
1: good one. So,
0: so Tony, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Well, you're wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot.